yeah, I guess what happens in Madagascar stays in Madagascar. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the podcast where if you don't like this episode, you can go shafak yourself, the Rasafari podcast. Y'all, I just recently got an analysis from Buzzsprout, the uh, podcast hosting company that uh, hosts Rasafari, uh, of my last year, the, the year in review of the podcast. And I talked about this on Zoo News. I'm not going to recap the whole thing now. But uh, what I found interesting was that my most downloaded, my most popular episode of all of 2022 was my interview with Dr. Lydia Green from the Duke Lemur Center. And the thing that is cool about that is I got that email on Thursday, January 12th, which was the day that I was recording Zoo News last week and also the day that I was planning on putting together today's episode which happens to be an interview with Dr. Lydia Green of the Duke Lemur Center. She's back, y'all. But in this case, she is not alone. In fact, uh, Lydia is here with the star of the show this week, Dr. Marina Blanco, who is an amazingly brilliant lemur scientist and also is Lydia's wife. So on the surface, we are here to talk about a very specific thing, which is hibernation in lemurs. And we do a lot. Like, I did not realize this would be such a just a full episode topic, um, but it is. And it's actually fascinating. Uh, what you're going to learn today um, is not just about lemurs and is, is about hibernation. Y'all have learned a very simplistic thing when it comes to hibernation. We all did in school. And uh, it's it's pretty wrong. And even though I've studied this a little bit more outside of like what we learned about bears in high school, uh, I was still shocked to learn a ton of really cool stuff in this episode. But if you're thinking, oh my goodness, is this going to be an hour of dry information about hibernation? Because y'all, I might end up hibernating if that's the case. I promise you the answer is no. We talk about all kinds of fun stuff. First of all, if you remember Lydia from last year's episode, uh, you know that this is a person who brings a lot of energy and a lot of excitement. She always has something to say and and often using many words, which I just am very appreciative of. I love passion. Uh, Marina is, I would say, a little shyer or a whole lot shyer and is a little more um, contemplative when it comes to her answers. As a matter of fact, most of my editing for this episode um, was just me cutting the pauses while Marina put together her perfect answer, which it always was. But not only is it cool having these two different types of people on the podcast simultaneously, but they're a married couple. 
and they're frankly an adorable married couple. And and you'll get to hear a whole lot of stuff, including their meet cute and uh, what it is like for them to work together and how they work as a team. And um, there's just a lot of fun stuff in there. And then towards the end of the interview, we talk a little bit about what it is like being lesbians in North Carolina being lesbians in Madagascar, in the STEM field. Uh, it's it's an interesting conversation, and I, I think it's an important one. I, I love how open uh, Lydia and Marina are in this entire episode, and I just know you're going to love it as well. So before we get to that, uh, just a quick reminder that you can uh, make sure that you hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Uh, also, rating and reviewing the podcast like really helps, takes very little time out of your life, makes a huge difference in mine. Just saying. And um, also make sure you're following along on Instagram, uh, Twitter, I guess, Facebook, at uh, Safari, on TikTok, at Pod, And um, yeah, just, you know, do the thing. Help us out. Let's keep growing this amazing community, which has been taking off already. So, all right, enough of all of that. Let's get to it. Uh, here is my interview with Dr. Marina Blanco and Dr. Lydia Green of the Duke Lemur Center. All right. So let's start off by uh, you telling me who you are and uh, where you work and what you do there. My name is Lydia Green, and I'm a lemur scientist here at the Duke Lemur Center in Durham, North Carolina, where I study our shifox specifically and their ecology, nutrition, gut microbiomes, adaptation, life and lives of the shifox genus. And I'm here with my extraordinary wife, Dr. Marina Blanco. And I am a lemur scientist at the Duke Lemur Center. Um, she questioned. <laughs> well, I am interested in the small, more elusive nocturnal lemurs of Madagascar, especially the ones that um, hibernate. Okay. And that is that is such a specific specialty. Um, I'm so curious, how did you get into that very specific thing? It's a long story. She'll tell you the whole thing. <laughs> well, I think I can summarize and say that in a way... Um, I had affinity with nocturnal lemurs when I was in Madagascar um, because they are sort of elusive and I'm a shy person and I really enjoy being in the forest at night. And so I started studying the mouse lemurs um, that are sort of um, also lemurs that can potentially hibernate. And being interested in looking at um, how they make a living and what they eat and what they do. And then I realized that part of the year, they basically disappear from the forest. And this is true of um, a few of the nocturnal lemurs and particularly dwarf, dwarf lemurs. And they um, disappear from the forest because they, they hibernate. So trying to understand how they do what they do was was challenging. Um, I already like being in the forest at night, so I began the search. And that has taken me over 15 years. Wow, that's really interesting. And I noticed that you have a slight accent. Or is that, um, I'm trying to pick up on it. Is that Kansas, maybe? Kansas? Yes. <laughs> 
where are you from, Marina? I, I come from Argentina and um, I have been in the U.S. for more than 20 years. Yet the, ac the accent has stayed with me. All right. So how did you get to Duke from uh, from Argentina? I So I am an anthropologist. So I was studying humans for a while, and then I became interested in evolution and um, wanted to get away from studying humans. And I basically met a very inspirational professor. Um, she is a professor in, here in the U.S., in Massachusetts, and I wrote an email to her. I think that was my first email ever. On your typewriter? Back in... <laughs> Back in 1999, um, so I contacted her and I said, can I go and study with you? And she said, sure. So I went to Massachusetts um, back in 2000. And I didn't know that she was actually an expert on lemurs. So I became aware of Madagascar and lemurs uh, right then, very late in life. And through my master's, I really became interested in lemurs and what they were. And and so for my PhD, I went to Madagascar. That was my second time camping ever. Um, it was a very... <laughs> traumatic experience it was the first a time. Traumatic experience because I went to the rainforest and I think Madagascar is this very tropical, you know, paradise, which is a paradise, but uh, it's, you know, it was very cold and I didn't have a rain jacket and... Um, I I basically did horribly uh, for three months, and um, I went back the following year, and then I reorganized <laughs> my list of items, and I really loved being in the forest. So, um, yeah, it took me a few years to find a project, and after that, I keep going back to Madagascar every year since um, 2004. So, pandemic. Yes, that was the first time that we uh, had to wait to go back. That's astonishing. That's so cool. Okay, so I have to ask, just from a, a human standpoint, um, so you went camping for the second time ever for three months and you were ill-prepared and still decided to go back a year later. Were you nervous? Were you freaked out? Did you want to give up? Or was what you were doing so important to you that you were able to overcome that? Yeah, I think in looking back, I I realized that um, the reason that I sort of failed during my first expedition is because I I was not really um, communicating with people. I didn't know what I was doing, and so it was like, oh, I'm going to go and like see what happens. And in sort of that semi-traumatic, exciting experience. Um, I realized if I wanted to be serious, I really needed to pay attention. I found the lemurs that uh, I was studying there like very um, intriguing. So I took it as a personal challenge. I said, you know, if I really want to do this the right way, I need to start paying attention and talking to people. Despite being shy and not um, being so social, I, I understand that I had to follow a sort of a protocol and. I start reading more about the lemurs. I start talking to, you know, my professor and other students. And I, you know, thought I was already in my mid-30s then. I I think I can do this. So I wanted to prove to myself that um, at that point I could be flexible enough to to change my attitude. And, um, and I became really 
proud of myself and excited in the process. So I realized that actually that really enjoy being in the forest at night and being prepared it makes things so much easier. And actually I could collect better data. And she has a reputation for basically being stronger and um, more stubborn. <laughs> Uh, Y'all should see the look they just exchanged. (laughs) Lydia had a check-in on that one, which is good. (laughs) Checking in is important. Yeah, she's, um, no, she's uh, really difficult actually to keep up with in the field. Um, I'm a bit younger, but I like have to like run so much here just to train, just to be able to keep up with her at like normal marina pace. Um, So yeah, you have a bit of a reputation both in Madagascar and outside of Madagascar as just being like one of the like toughest people in the field. That's awesome. Even if you can't take the compliment and have to look away awkwardly. Yeah. <laughs> That's very cool. Okay. So, you know, we'll, we'll get to animally stuff, but I have to ask, here is a person who is the shyest person I've ever had on the podcast, who I know where this is going. we're just going to throw you under the bus a little, sorry, but um, who would not agree to do a solo interview with me, but because, you know, it's scary and nervous to talk to people, which I get, who has only actually looked directly at the camera twice in the time that we've been talking so far, which is fine. There's a third time and that's fine. My wife is very shy and very similar, so I understand it. Um, And I'm not. So I kind of, I know how this can happen, but how the heck did the shyest lemur scientist fall in love with possibly the most gregarious person I've talked to on the podcast and who is just so open and out there and constantly on Instagram, you know, you're constantly like, Hey, ask me things. Let me tell you everything. And your responses are not short, which is great. They're thorough, which is good. But you know, I wish, I wish I had more characters. Actually, I often (laughs) have to edit them to be shorter. Yes. Yes. I understand. Um, so how the heck did this happen? I don't even know where I, I, I'm not actually sure why she likes me. I think (laughs) A part of it, um, which is maybe my like professional impostery problems coming into our personal relationship as well. <laughs> but I guess like the short of it is that we met in Madagascar. We were both going on to we were both going to the same research site, but on two different teams. So I was on the diurnal team looking for Shafakan injury, and Marina was the head of the nocturnal team going for dwarf lemur. So she didn't know that I was coming, and I didn't know that she was coming. And at the time, I was still in the closet, and I was dating a guy. Um, and so that was really awkward because I think she knew already, but I didn't. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. And then because I was doing diurnal work and she was doing nocturnal work, there wasn't a whole lot of overlap in our schedules other than like the occasional team meal. So we didn't, I mean, like we talked a little bit on that mission, but I was just not ready and open yet to like have that conversation. And then two years later, we ended up back in Madagascar in the same place at the same time again, um, unintentionally. And at that point I had come out and was sort of like more open to things. And yeah, I guess what happens in Madagascar stays in Madagascar. Apparently not. (laughs) Yeah. I think I remember thinking telling you that she seemed like an intriguing oddity the time, because I, I knew she was super smart and, you know, we were interested in music and other non-scientific things. And I mean, the chances to find somebody with sort of those passions converging and um, it's pretty rare. So I, I, I was interested in and I really enjoyed the conversations. And, and so from the very beginning, we talk a lot about Limerson science and that was part of 
the stuff I think that was interesting to me to have that connection. Yeah. I mean, I think they, they sort of say like opposites attract. And I think for us almost it's like scientific opposites attract. So we're interested in possibly the two most different lemurs from each other, Shafak and dwarf lemurs, different families, different ecologies, different activity patterns, but we're actually fundamentally interested in kind of the same question, which is how do animals use sort of unusual or extreme strategies to survive in unusual or extreme ecosystems. And so we come to, I think, being interested in the similar things, but from very, very different places. And so I think very quickly, we found that there was like a really great synergy for conversation because we just came from different perspectives. And then on top of it, I think we have opposite skills as scientists that tend to blend really well and and work really well together. Um, So Marina thinks about things and she it sort of has a great way of synthesizing information together and and knowing how to spin things in a way that I wouldn't think of. Um, and I think I'm better at maybe like finding the academic jargon to craft that into like a standardized jargony message. So I think you're more imaginative in that sense. And I may be a bit more structured, but we tend to like, I think work really well together. I threw words at you and you put sentences on them. You throw, you, you throw glitter and sprinkles at me and I make them into dessert or something. I don't know. <laughs> Wow. What I have learned about you two is that you are both bad at analogies. So that's something. <laughs> um, no, but what I what I love about that and what's really cute to me as an outsider seeing it is that you're talking about the differences and how different, you know, opposites attract kind of thing. But you're literally like, you're like, we're very different in our love of lemurs, which is a very similar specific thing. And then you're like, we're very different in our very specific types of stuff that we do for the science that we do. It's like in this whole world, you're both lemur scientists, but you're as opposite as can be for lemur scientists. And I think I had that modeled for me because both my parents are classical musicians and they got together because they were in conservatory together, but they're also very different in how they approach music. So I think I had that modeled for me early on that in a personal relationship at home, you could still have this great professional synergy that sort of makes both lives um, more meaningful. No, and I love that. That's really cool. Um, Shout out to Judy and Josh Green. <laughs> so I have to ask um this this trip where you, where y'all met the second time and and you're in Madagascar and and sparks fly and sprinkles come together to a dessert or whatever Thank and you. and there is yes there is there is love in the air how long of a trip was it So I was there for I mean you were living there so Marina was living in Madagascar and I was coming to sort of the area where she was was living and working for a shorter mission I think I was there for max like I mean, it can't have been more than three months. So it must've been like two months. And then we did long distance for the better part of the next two years, which was rough because she was living almost full-time in Madagascar. And I was working on my dissertation here because I was still in grad school at the time. And then basically the way we did it is that for the last two years of my grad degree, I like basically moved to Madagascar with you and wrote a big chunk of my dissertation from her apartment in Madagascar. And then um, you ended up switching to like a different job here within the Lemur Center that allowed you to be based in Durham. And so we could travel together, but we wouldn't be living in Madagascar full time. Okay. That's cute. I was just, I had this mental image that y'all had this thing where you were basically camping again. And I was going to say, yo, it's got to be hard to have like new love blossom when you can't shower. That was. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I think there's things that people like care about and then there's things that people care less about. And I guess when you're like digging your own toilet at at some point, the like uh, 
showering every day. I don't know. I, I prioritize showers, I think, in a field more than you do, just from like you spent more time camping than I have. But yeah, I think we have different styles of camping, but we have. I'm glad. I thought you were going to say different standards. I'm glad you said styles. <laughs> we, I think, it took some adjustment, but now um, we know the things that we need to do to be comfortable. Yeah. That's good. That's good. I'm just, it's, it sounds like such a meat cute until you realize that it might be a meat cute without showers. I don't know. Just a thought. <laughs> yeah, I mean, luckily at the time, so I was tenting at the site where I was like staying when we first got together, but you were living in an apartment in a city. Um, so she was based in a city, but there was a bunch of different forest ecosystems nearby where a lot of the work was, but you were living in the city. I don't think either of us has done like hardcore, like seven months of tenting. I haven't. No, seven months. No. no. I think the longest for me was like a couple of months. So there's always a shower in there somewhere. <laughs> a bucket shower. Good, good. All right. So, uh, you know, one of the one of the things that, that we're, we're here to talk about is lemur hibernation. And um, I am just so wildly curious. I did not know that there were hibernating. Le- uh, I did not know that there were hibernating lemurs until my episode with you. Um, so can we talk about that? How many species of lemurs hibernate? Is it true hibernation or is it more of a torpor thing? Like, just tell me the stuff that you know and impress me. All right. I start and you may insert. I would start by defining hibernation versus torpor. Let's get that out of the way. Okay. Well, I should say first, maybe as a summary, like what is hibernation? So hibernation, I think in a few words is a strategy to save energy. Now, and we tend to think that, you know, animals hibernate in cold environments where there is no food. And um, But we are learning a lot more about tropical animals in general that use hibernation as a strategy to survive the dry season when there is no food. So in primates now, um, in our own group, we have um, actually very few animals that express hibernation. And yes, it is so-called true hibernation. Um, when we think about hibernation and torpor is one way to think about it is that um, half of the year, animals basically spend their time hibernating. And that means that they are reducing their metabolism. And by doing so, they are basically um, reducing all the energetic needs. Um, so they they can spend as little energy as needed for to sustain life. Um, during the hibernation season, animals go through these periods of um, called torpor, and that's the specific time where they depress metabolism. Um, and then in between these torpor bouts that can last for several days at a the time, they will um, undergo the call arousals. And that's so this very short period is where they will basically come out of hibernation uh, and then go back into the torpor. So torpor is part of the hibernation sort of um, season. And I don't know if it's you can explain a little bit more like the, the difference between Torpor and arousal, or is that clear? Yeah. So I, the way that you've like sort of trained, I didn't know anything about lemur hibernation before I started 
dating Marina. So this has been a very like steep and very enjoyable learning curve for me over the past couple of years as well. But basically the way I think about it from what you've said is that we have the hibernation season is the time of year when animals are looking to save energy. And then within the hibernation season, these guys cycle between prolonged bouts of metabolic depression called torpor, where the body temperature is lowered to ambient, metabolism decreases, heart rate slows, brain activity slows, organ functions, like everything just slows down. And that can last for like 10 to 14 days, depending on the species and the habitat. And those torpor bouts are punctuated by these periodic arousals. And during arousals, which typically last under 24 hours, the animals basically burn their fat to heat back up again. And arousals are thought to be really important for maintaining organ function, getting rid of waste in the body. I think probably just like oiling the machine and making sure you're not dead and that things still function and um, also animal sleep um, during these arousals. So I think the word arousal is confusing because it makes it sound like the animals are running around, but they arouse and they you generally stay in place. They stay curled up, they sleep, um, and then they, after 24 hours, will go back down into a prolonged bout of torpor. So the way I was trained about hibernation, I feel like in school, is that like the bear goes into the cave and sleeps for like six months. And so you think of it as this very passive process, but through learning from Marina, what I've come to understand is that hibernation is actually a very dynamic time where you're cycling between these like very, very cold, like energy savings, and then these periodic arousals where it's like heat, heat, go, go, go. Oh, okay, now go back down again. So it's it's very dynamic and very changey. And so there's a lot of stuff that happens during the hibernation season. So I think what you would say is that you have um, the flexibility of hibernating in the tropics means that there's metabolic flexibility in the hibernation season. So how long your torpor bouts, how deep that metabolic depression is can really vary depending on the environmental conditions. Is it a hot environment? Is it a cold environment? Is it a fluctuating environment. Um, so all those things sets up different parameters for how these animals can depress metabolism um, during the dry season. Wow. Okay. That's really interesting. I, you're right. I had no idea that hibernation was so complex. As a matter of fact, when you initially said like, hey, we should do an interview about like hibernation, you know, with lemurs in your case, um, I was like, okay. I assume it will be something like, I I was literally, my literal thought was like, it's going to be like, so tell me about uh, lemur hibernation. Lemurs sleep for half the year. Cool. Thank you. This has been the Raw Safari podcast. (laughs) Um, But I I trusted that your instincts were better than that. And they are. Um, Wow. I did not realize. And and that's not just lemurs. That's like what you just described as hibernation, you know, in general, right? Yes, I think... um... The interesting thing about tropical hibernation is that, as Lydia said, these sort of different styles that you can experience. Um, in you know, in the Arctic, you know, you think about squirrels. Basically, is freezing temperatures for six months a year. So you go into these torpor bouts and arousals for six months, and that's all you do. Um, in Madagascar, you know, each forest. Uh, is different. So you have rainforest and dry forest and, you know, high elevation forest. And that means that there are different temperature profiles. There are the rainy season can be longer or shorter. The conditions are so different that you have uh, the potential to experience hibernation um, in different ways. So if you are a dwarf lemur in the west of Madagascar, you will go into a tree hold and basically go up and down the temperature. You know, you will heat up during the day and cool down during the night and uh, potentially spend sort of that hibernation style for like six months, up to seven months a year. 
if you are in the high elevation forest of Madagascar in the central part of the island, when it's really cold during the winter time, you will go underground and basically behave like a squirrel. They will go into these long torpor bouts and arousals. Um, if you are in a low elevation rainforest and you are a dwarf glimmer hibernating, you may go into also a tree hole or a nest and then hibernate for only two or three months a year. Um, so there are a lot of variation in this sort of hibernation um, topic. And I think that's the exciting part about Madagascar and about uh, the dwarf lemurs, that they are so so flexible ecologically, and that shows into how they decide to hibernate. Yeah, and I guess what I'd add to that is that I think when we all think of dwarf lemurs in the West and in the U.S., we tend to think of the fat-tailed dwarf lemur because that's the one that we have here at the Duke Lemur Center. And so they get a lot of the spotlight, which they totally deserve. They're incredible animals. But a lot of people don't realize that there are eight other species, at least in Madagascar, of dwarf lemur. So we now recognize minimally nine distinct species of dwarf lemur. We both think there will be more dwarf lemurs actually being described as, as species in the coming decade or so. And so it's not just that you have one type of dwarf lemur, you have multiple types of dwarf lemurs and all of these different ecosystems experiencing so many different conditions within and across years that really sets up this level of flexibility and variation that I think we're excited to sort of just un- better understand. Yeah, that is really cool. Is is Madagascar like, I mean, I don't know. I always kind of like, like you were saying, when you first went there, you didn't really think of it as being a very varied place, but it is. Tell, tell me more and, and how, how that kind of applies to this situation. So Madagascar is a really large island for um, folks from America. It's about the length of California. So it's actually really, really Wait, big. what? No. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're it's wrong. The, I'm t- no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I am, <laughs> I am not totally accurate, but I am close. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, science, science nerds are my favorite. No, but what? I mean, I'm shocked by that. Yeah, I think Madagascar doesn't get the sort of like spotlight on its size that it deserves because usually it's pictured next to continental Africa, which is just like enormous. Right, and right. That tends to dwarf the size of Madagascar. But Madagascar is a really large island. It's the fourth largest island on Earth, I think, depending on if you count Australia as an island or a continent. And so I'm with you guys. Either way you want to spin that, it's fine. It's a big island. <laughs> um, ranks in the top five. Um, and so I think... Because it's such a big island, it really has features that are more akin to a continent than a country. So you have mountain ranges, you have, I mean, like rainforest, dry forest, spiny desert, mountainous forest, lowland forests. I mean, and now you have human modified agricultural lands as well. So you really have just this wealth of ecosystems. And then overlaid on top of sort of the diversity of landscapes in Madagascar, you have the first lemurs arriving about 50 million years, 50 to 60 million years ago in one colonizing wave. And from that one founding event, we get sort of this adaptive radiation into 100 plus species from 15 different lineages that sort of go all over the island and and diversify um, and sort of niche differentiate across these different ecosystems. So you end up with this huge level of diversity and endemism. Um, and that really just sets up a lot of interesting questions about evolution and ecology. Um, and, and part of the hibernation story is that some lineage of lemurs decided that the strategy they were going to go down is to get really small and to decide to become heterothermic and to use these different strategies and no other lemur family decided that that was the way they were going to go. Other families were like, I'm going to get big and eat leaves. Other families were like, I'm going to do something else. And the small bodied mouse and dwarf lemurs were like, we're going to get really small and we're going to, we're going to use hybrid, we're going to use hibernation. 
Okay. So it's, yeah, the story of diversity. That That's amazing. But I'm also, I guess, I mean, I'm a little confused by it just from like, I think the, um, I guess you would say the general understanding of evolution, like, like what I've always heard and such. And I mean, I've read Darwin and stuff is that, um, you, you adapt to what's going on around you. Yes. So why do believers adapt in different ways? That's what I'm asking. Yes. That is, I'm so curious about that. So, um, I guess the big picture I would say is that all lemurs in Madagascar and the ancestors of modern lemurs in Madagascar face a situation and where every year you're going to have a rainy season. So a season of plenty, a season of fruit, a season of joy, and you're going to have a dry season, a season of leaves, a season of nothing else, a season of misery. And so what you as a lemur have to figure out is what is your strategy going to be to survive the dry season? And not all lemurs can use the same strategy because then they're going to be competing with each other for the limited resources that exist in the dry season. So what we see is some species were like, never mind, I'm only going to live in the rainforest. Those are your rough lemurs. Some species were like, I'm going to evolve the capacity to eat really low quality leaves in the dry season. Those are your shafak, your sportive lemurs, your woolly lemurs. And then you have other species like the mouse and dwarf lemurs that were like, I'm going to hibernate. I'm going to make good on the fruits that are available in the rains in the rainy season to get super duper fat. And then I'm going to live off of those fat stores. And I think what Marina would say is that hibernation is really only metabolically possible if, if you're small and bears are a big, weird deviation from everything in hibernation biology. So exclude bears for now, but excluding bears that hibernation makes the most sense if you're small body, just metabolically and energetically. And so it's not surprising um, that the lineage that went down the route of hibernation are also the, the ones that underwent dwarfism. Wow. That's really interesting. And that, that does. It makes sense. Ecology. It's fascinating. It is. That's really cool. Oh, I love nerdy crap so much. You want to like, <laughs> you want to correct anything that I just said there that was maybe no, factually no. inaccurate? No, no. I mean, that's, that's a general yeah, okay. narrative. That, that's a podcast audience worthy answer. I know that there are probably some things that are, you know, but yeah, I think that, that, no, that makes a lot of sense. And that's, that's such a fascinating look at, um, you know, evolution in general, I think. Um, I'm just curious. And I mean, I know you don't study them, so it's fine. But like... What's wrong with bears? Yeah. Yeah. Should, you want to talk about just, bears? Do you just want to ask... You should just ask my questions for me. This is cool. You're good at this. I, I really enjoy talking about hibernation now that I better understand it. And it makes me very excited to see folks like finally realize that like what we learned in school was an oversimplification that it's right. like a more fascinating topic to get into. So... Well, and I also just love, I remember this from the last interview too, that like you and I are very in sync in how we like talk and think about a lot of these things. I remember yeah. that. So yeah, that's, that's very cool. But yeah, yeah. Marina, explain to us why bears are weird. Bears. Um, without going into the detail, detail of the bears, um, I think the main difference between bear hibernation and that of a dwarf lemur or even a squirrel is that bears are able to hibernate without actually decreasing their body temperature significantly. So for a dwarf lemur, the colder the environment where they hibernate, the lower the temperature in their body. And so they're able to reduce metabolism because the colder it is, the lower your metabolism. There is this sort of relationship there. Um, bears somehow evolved to reduce metabolism, so their energy needs, by lowering their temperature, but just a little bit. So a lot of the processes, if you will, physiological processes like sleep and, you know, things like um, other things that go on 
the bears do differently because they maintain uh, relatively hot bodies through hibernation. Um, they behave differently than than dwarf lemurs. They don't go into these torpor valves and arousals. So the, almost like it's a completely different evolutionary path that the bears took to reduce metabolism. And so there is a question as to whether you should call it the same way: hibernation in bears, hibernation in in uh, in the other smaller smaller animals. That makes sense. That's actually what I was just going to ask. Then was is it actually hibernation, or should we call it something different? Right. I like calling them hot-bodied bears. Yeah, no, I, that, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I think I, I, if I call the, this episode hot-bodied bears, we might get some different types different. of fans. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, yeah, that's really, okay, that's really interesting. So uh, do, is there anything else that you want to talk about with lemur hibernation stuff? Because this is just fascinating. I mean, we've been talking mostly about dwarf lemur hibernation in Madagascar, which is, I think, where a lot of our interest in, well, your interest that I've now just like hijacked onto, but it's like your interest in hibernation that I've followed you. Um, but I think one of the great things about being staff scientists here at the Duke Lemur Center is that we have the only breeding colony of dwarf lemurs outside of Madagascar. So we have currently 42 dwarf lemurs in our colony. Um, and we just uh, inaugurated or are inaugurating right now new hibernation chambers in a brand new research and veterinary building. And so we have the capacity to allow a huge chunk of our dwarf lemur colony every year to hibernate in rooms where we can really, really strictly control the environmental conditions, including things like temperature, humidity, light cycles. And so um, basically over the past three or four years have been the first time that our dwarf lemurs have gone into true proper hibernation exactly the same way that their wild kin would in Western Madagascar because um, we have the Western species here. So it's a really exciting time for us, I think, as like people interested in dwarf lemur hibernation because we have the physical infrastructure here um, to basically facilitate hibernation in these guys and we can start to ask questions in a, in a very safe way for the animals. We can start to ask questions about the mechanisms that enables hibernation um, in a way that we can't necessarily do in Madagascar. Very cool. And I know, you know, that leads to an interesting question. Um, the Duke Lemur Center is not a zoo, although you can go see it and there, you know, are captive populations. Um, but in zoos in general, I know that a lot of times animals that hibernate don't hibernate in zoos. Um, and just like kind of how you can switch the clock on nocturnal, non-nocturnal animals in, in zoos, that kind of thing. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And does that make sense? And is that something that we understand? Or is that something where you feel like, you know, hey, zoos need to set it up so that they can hibernate? And, you know, just in general, what are your thoughts? Well, you take that first. Yeah, I would say that um, animals that evolve to hibernate, um, really what they did, they evolved to alternate between these cycles. So you go through periods of, you know, fattening and then periods of uh, basically depleting the fats that you accumulated and lean state. And so that's part of the the package of what they evolved to do. And to think that under conditions that are different from the wild, you may not experience those, those cycles. And for example, you may accumulate fats, but not being able to deplete them, or you may not... Um, basically experience of physiological ranges that you could in the wild may potentially have um, health um, effects. Um, we Part of the reason we are trying to do this at the DLC, yes, is to study hibernation. Part of it is because we think that it's actually good for them to, to experience hibernation. 
Um, there is some uh, some data from um, from institutions where, for example, they have bears that we mentioned before, and looking at markers like you know glucose. Um, insulin, you know, things that can measure a little bit how the body is doing. Uh, if you look at bears that are not able to hibernate in captivity, they are basically they are behaving like, um, you would say, in a human, sort of diabetic, something like that. Um, bears that are placed in a um, uh, position to hibernate actually normalize their their value. So I think that they, you can make the argument that there is a health benefit to make animals hibernate even under under captive conditions. Yeah, I think I think hibernation is an extreme example of this, but I think for Marina and myself because we've worked in Madagascar where everything we think about is tuned to the fact that it's a seasonal place. And I think a lot of the husbandry in the zoo community, which is I completely understand why, but it's sort of aimed at stability. You want to have like a healthy weight for an animal and not deviate too much from that. You want to find a very nutritious diet for an animal and not deviate too much from that. But these, for lemurs at least, and, and hibernators, evolve to live seasonal lives. And so I think there's a question within our community about what is optimal for an animal. Is it to be stable? But if you evolve to be a cycler, is it is it better to be cycling some way? And if, and if the latter turns out to be the case, how do we facilitate that in a way that's healthy for the animals? But And then I think about it from you know, the perspective of, of the animal welfare. But I think the flip side about it is the is the conservation value of animals that are kept under human management. Because I think if we want to consider animals in captivity as arcs for their wild kin, we can't just conserve the genes, we have to conserve the behaviors and we have to conserve the flexibility and the resilience that these animals are going to need potentially if they're ever going to be reintroduced to the wild. And knowing how to hibernate, knowing how to store fat, knowing how to come out of hibernation, knowing how to regulate yourself during the hibernation season, those are maybe skills that these animals will need to learn and practice before they can go back into the wild. And so I think retaining and encouraging wildlife behaviors in a safe way for the animals is also an important part of the work that we do um, uh, as, as managers of, of captive wildlife. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's uh, very cool and a lot to think about. Um, yeah, and I do know like some zoos, especially again, I know more about bears in the, these situations, but they do allow their bears to hibernate or whatever. I think it's, you know, it's it's varies. I don't, in my experience with, again, accredited zoos, the type of stuff we have on the podcast, I've never uh, I've never talked to anybody who decided to, like, not allow their animals to do the things. It's more that they don't exhibit those behaviors mm -hmm. for whatever. And I think that's a good point to talk about for hibernation, because for years, I mean, decades here at the Dwarf Lemur, our Dwarf Lemur, at the Dwarf Lemur. For decades here at the Lemur Center, I think you would prefer it if it was the Dwarf Lemur Center. The Dwarf Lemur. the Dwarf Lemur Center. For decades here, basically, our dwarf lemurs did not hibernate. And that's because they were kept under conditions that were typical for a primate, but that are not what would induce hibernation in them. And so it's only become in the more sort of like recent past few years where we've been able to get the approval from IACUC and from the ethics boards to implement the environmental conditions that would induce hibernation, which is to put a primate in cold conditions with not a whole lot of food. And so I think for a long time, that was a really scary prospect to say, I want to put a primate and not feed it you know, for some time. And I think people were saying, no, 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 primates, you know, regulatory uh, ordinances mean we have to feed the primates every day, which ordinance is probably a dumb, fancy word that I pulled out of my butt there. I don't know what the word is, but that, you know, you're supposed to feed your primates every day. And so it took, I think, really years of field data coming in to document that what these animals do in the wild is not eat for four to seven months a year. For us to say these animals have evolved the capacity to do this. And it's 
safe for them in the wild. And we can find a way to do that in captivity that's safe as well. But I understand that we had these animals in captivity for years before the de- the, the data from the field could come in and say, okay, can we can we update things a little bit more in, in accordance with what we know that they're doing now? And interestingly, if I'm if I'm understanding you right, so the you you have dwarf lemurs that were not hibernating. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as you started to make those wild conditions happen in captivity they like remembered how to and started doing it that's really interesting that was a i mean those were competing hypotheses we um we we came with a lot of motivation and um and a little bit cautious because when we presented this um, sort of physiological challenge to our captive dwarf lemurs. We didn't know 100% how they were going to respond. I mean, as you said, they have been sort of removed from their wild um, ancestors, if you will, for several generations, eight or nine generations. So that was actually very, very interesting that they were able to respond very well um, as expected in a very predictable manner as. Uh, wild dwarf lemurs. And so that was actually um, extremely exciting that under those conditions, they behave like a wild dwarf lemur. Were you scared when you first did it in terms of like, you know what the evidence says happens in the wild, but like now you're doing it to like your lemurs, you know, was that, was that a scary moment? It was, I, I have to say that First of all, I went to Madagascar before coming to the DLC. So I was studying dwarf lemurs in Madagascar. So I have been sort of exposed to nature, what they do. And I have seen hibernating dwarf lemurs in the world. So I knew that that's what they do there. Um, So, and as far as being nervous, I, um, I was optimistic, of course, you know, you put so many like safety measures in the process. Um, so we were really monitoring them very, very closely from the very beginning and see how much, you know, way they were losing and, you know, the temperature, how, how they were responding. So they were very, very closely monitored. But um, pretty quickly, we realized that because all of them were sort of behaving similarly and responding to um, fairly quickly, we, we realized that they, they could definitely do it. Yeah, that's one of the things I really enjoy about working here at the Lemur Center is that us as researchers, we also get to interact and collaborate with our veterinary and our husbandry staff. And so having checks in our protocol, safety checks from the veterinary perspective, from the husbandry perspective, and from the research perspective, I think was, was a really also like place of synergy that everyone felt comfortable with the protocols that we had put forth. Cool. Good. I, I mean, yeah, I, that, that makes sense. I just know, I mean, I still get, I still get slightly nervous when I, you know, have a dog spayed or neutered and obviously it's the most important yeah. thing in the world but i mean i can't imagine just being like hey we're gonna we, we hope this works but uh I mean, if you had seen the amount of fat in the tails of these animals <laughs> you would have known that they could have gone for much longer <laughs> that's fair it's not like you would have let them starve to death no, I, no, I, no, 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 no we have very specific weight loss uh, criteria and benchmarks throughout the season that makes sense do they use noom or weight watchers or something or <laughs> yeah chiral watchers <laughs> Very, very interesting. Um, yeah, this is all really fascinating to me, honestly. Um, very cool. So do you have, uh, Marina, do you have any um, favorites in your population at the yes. DLC? Oh. <laughs> yes, she does. She was about to deny it, but you you shut that down. She absolutely does. <laughs> Tell me about them. 
so well i i think i have one favorite i mean i i no she loves them all yes of and course I, I try to put the distance because again i come from madagascar so i i see them as wild lemurs even if they are here um but I got particularly um, attached to, I would say, she's like the matriarch of the dwarf lemur colony. She is um, middle-aged um, for a dwarf lemur in, you know, 17 or so years old. Um, uh, she is, um, how would you describe her temperament without anthropomorphizing very much? I can't do that. She's, she's fierce. She's fierce. <laughs> um, she... Um, she would survive in, in the wild is how I feel about her. I think that's part of the reason I, I really appreciate her. Um, she had, you know, multiple liters over the year. She's, I guess, cranky. I don't know who would be the... Um, she doesn't like, um, you know, when you get close to her. And uh, I think it's that fierceness that um, is, you know, is what attracts me. And she... I think that she has survived very different conditions and, you know, she has a lot of probably uh, stories to tell if she, she could. And she's a very good mother in the context of a dwarf lemur, right? So she, uh, she builds these nests uh, when she has a kid. Uh, she evicts her kids at some point, you know? So there is this sort of dynamic that you see that exactly what you would see in Madagascar. And I, I really appreciate her. What's her name? Sandpiper. <laughs> That's really cute. That's awesome. All right. Very cool. And, um, you know, to move away from lemurs for a second and, and back to y'all, um, I think we've now established, along with all of the, the nerdy lemur stuff, we've established that you two are an absolutely adorable couple. Um, that these interactions are just, I, I'm, I'm loving this. I'm actually, I don't put video out, but like, I, I wish my audience could see you two interacting because it's just, it's what a cute, happy couple should be. Um, and you're both women. And, you know, it's 2022. That's allowed now. Um, but all joking aside, I'm really curious because, I mean, you're in North Carolina. And I know I've spent a lot of time in the Raleigh-Durham area. And it's, it's a pretty progressive area for North Carolina, but it's North Carolina. And also, you are in the scientific community. Um, and you are also in the, in Madagascar, which I don't really know what their situation is like, but I would love to hear what it is like for y'all to be part of the LGBTQ plus community in those three spheres. So I don't know. Um, so in Madagascar, um, I think that we, um, we work together now. Um, we go to the forest, we tend to, you know, coordinate and, we have basically same collaborators and and I think we actually haven't really talked to anybody that I know of directly about um except for our friends from there. Right. Yeah. There is there is almost like um a camaraderie. We 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 integrate our work um with Everybody there. Let me let me like jump in here because I think the the distinction is that when we go to Madagascar, we go as work colleagues. We're not yeah. going on personal vacation. Sure. So there's no reason for anyone there to know that we're to to know or to not know. Right? We're there as professionals and as colleagues, and so that's how we work when we're there. Because again, we're not there for personal reasons. So I think I maybe we would behave differently if we were going somewhere for a vacation or for a personal yeah. reason. But but the, the reason I might go with Marina to a forest is because there's a functional role for me to play as a researcher in that forest, not just because I'm tagging on to, to my wife's trip. 
So, I mean, sometimes we will design our field work to make sure that it syncs up with both of our research schedules, but fundamentally that we're both there for work. And so I actually get asked this question pretty regularly on social media. It's like, what's it like to be a, a lesbian in Madagascar? And the answer is like, I never go there. I go there as a working professional. So I, I just... It's not that I purposely switched that part off of me, but the same way that I don't talk about my identity at work here, I don't talk about my identity at work there because I'm, I'm there for work. Sure, but I'm going to poke a little bit if that's okay. Yeah. Um, you know, um, again, I, you know, I'm a musician and I, I largely work in the theater world. So this is something that I discuss with a lot of people and I'm always, I'm always curious. Um, and I fully accept that I am, you know, I am white, I am straight, I am cis, I'm male. I, I don't, I don't get an opinion. I, so I'm honestly just trying to understand here, but like, I feel like, you know, if, if Zoe and I were to go to a zoo together to do an interview and she's a veterinarian and we are a couple, we would not be like hiding the fact that we are married or like opposed to like, you know, I'm not saying that we're going to make out at the Red Panda exhibit, but also like, um, you know, I wouldn't be opposed to like giving her a hug if I need or like just like touching her hand or something like there's just those little coupley things. And so I'm just kind of from what you're saying, are you saying that you feel the need to turn that off? And or, no, or is it just no, that? No. you? OK, OK, cool. That's what it was kind of coming across that. that way to me. A but, uh, I think we just try to separate when we're working together as professionals and when we're in our home life. Right? I think because we're married and because we work together, I think it's important that we at least have some kind of like boundaries for ourselves about when we're at, we're at work and when we're not at work. Yeah. And the same here. I mean, we have colleagues and friends in Madagascar and, and they um, they know about us. And I think that what was interesting, maybe a couple of years ago, um, we, the same way that I, you know, introduced this topic to my friends in Argentina, there was almost some hesitation about how they would react. And um, our colleagues and friends in Madagascar were completely, I guess, not surprised about it. And it was not, um, nobody cared. Yeah, basically. Um, <laughs> Nobody cared. I've I've had more remarks. Oh, wait, I hear your radio going. Um, sorry, we have to have like radios on. No, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, check, check the thing and I'll edit this. But yeah, I was going to say that I I think I've actually faced more homophobic comments in the U.S. than I have in Madagascar. And this is my way. shocked face. <laughs> Come on, of course you have. Uh, so sad. But that's in part because I live a personal life here in the U.S. And when I'm in Madagascar, I live a professional life. Fair, 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 fair. Um, okay, that's fair. Yeah. And, and you know, um, I'm, I'm glad that you explained it that way, just because that makes a lot more sense to me. Um, and I also, you know, I should, I should, should, I could, I will, I will clarify that I think if we were two men sharing a hotel room or sharing a tent, we might get more comments or looks than we do. I think in some ways, the idea of women sharing space both here and there is is less eyebrow raising. Um, and so I think part of that is we just mask behind our genders, not intentionally, but just societally and culturally. At the same time, I think that because um, there may be something phenotypical or like um, um, I have been... Um, Exposed. I have. I know um, part of the community in the in the capital of Madagascar. I know that there are uh, places where you can you can gather. So I I think compared to the U.S., it's a little bit more hidden, if you will. But you have a community, and I, for my years there, I was able to sort of have a sort of contact. And uh, again, we were a little surprised that. When we have, you know, talk to our friends, this is not something that they um, they find particularly worth um, 
discussing. Yeah, I mean, and that's also American culture, right? Like in America, everybody had a reaction. It was either like full of exclamation points or full of question marks, but it was full of some kind of punctuation. <laughs> and in Madagascar, everybody was just sort of much more even and and just sort of like, okay, what's for dinner? Interesting. Yeah, I um. I talk a lot with 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 friends in in the community, and I I, I do. I, I sometimes wonder if if um I don't know. Sometimes I think talking about things is really important, and is how you you normalize things that should be normalized and aren't for whatever reason. Um, and then other times I think sometimes yeah, it just puts more. I don't know. I I go back and forth, but again, I go back and forth on that as a person who also knows that I don't get an opinion. I just I like talking philosophically and learning, and yeah. So okay, and is it. Is it hard in North Carolina? I mean, y'all seem very happy. Okay, yeah, I figured from from, from my time there. Durham, North Carolina is like, I don't know, like as close to gay paradise, I guess, as you can get. (laughs) Yeah, I think I got yelled by looking a Latina. Yeah, you're more likely to get racism than homophobia. Um, Yeah, no, I I find the Durham community very, very supportive. Um, Even more, I mean, I grew up in New York City and I would rather live here. Wow. Okay. That's really interesting. And then how about, how about in the scientific community? Is there any, I mean, not any of, there's always some, but do you encounter any homophobia or anything like that? Or, or is it even just sexism? Cause I know I have heard that there is a, a lot of sexism in the research science community. It depends general. on which generation you're talking to. I think the generation from us younger, not at all. Um, I've have had more of that coming from the generation or two above us. So I think, and I think that's a shift in American culture as well that you're seeing reflected in academia. That makes sense. Cool. Thanks for sharing all of that. I I know it's, um, I I can't imagine what it's like, I think, to constantly have to, and I know you do because I see it on your your Instagram and everything, constantly have to just be asked questions about just the basic of who you are. Like, And I don't feel like, I feel like I've purposely been open about that in part because it took me a really long time to figure it out. Mm -hmm. I didn't come out to myself until I was almost 28. Right. So I was older and then, I mean, it made it like, it was like a light switch flipped on and it was, uh, and then of course it was like, how could I not have known? How could I have existed for, you know, however many years as an adult and had absolutely no clue. I mean, obviously somewhere there was a clue, but so I, you know, I think having open role models, especially on social media, given the age that we're living in is like really important. I'm not that I call myself a role model, but having like open examples of people. And I I think, you know, it just, it takes more people being visible. And I mean, I'm in a really safe place here to be visible. I don't, you know, have a concern about being fired from my job or being unsupported by my colleagues. So I, I, it's easy for me to be open. And so I, you know, my heart goes out to all the people for whom it's not that easy to be open. And so at least I can be a voice that is able to be open um, with confidence on social media. So it's, it's a, that's a, that's a conscious choice of mine, as opposed to like, I feel obligated. Cause I actually don't feel obligated. I feel like I can share as much as I want to, and I don't feel pressure to share anything I don't want to. Sweet. I love that. And I actually, I have a friend who is, uh, uh, well, I won't say her age, but older than you were when, when having that. And she's just now having that realization within the last year and a half or so, literally the same thing. And it has been, um, fascinating to watch and like talk through her experience and thought process and everything. And, you know, um, I, I don't want to get too far away from animal stuff here, but yeah, no, I do think it really has, I will just tell you, it has helped her to have voices and realize like, oh, this is not some weird, because when she first realized it, and especially later in life, like you said, it was very like, what the hell is happening? 
Like, and what I, did I do for the last X number of decades? <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I know she just sought out like any examples of this and it, it really helped her. So thank you for being there for people who, you know, need that or just benefit from it. I think that's very I had cool. people ahead of me. Yeah, of course. And um, I'm curious, Marina, with you being uh, as shy as you are, is it sometimes hard to have a a partner who's um, very open about not just y'all, but about like just her life in general and, and your, you know, relationship in general? No, I think on the contrary. I mean, I feel like I can be more open, not only in the things I can say, but also in my thoughts, because she helps translate a lot of the stuff. So it's almost like um, amplifying um, part of my life in a way that I think I wouldn't be able to do it by my, by, and on my own, by myself. So it, it's actually beneficial. And I mean, we, we still have our own space, right? I, we don't, if I want to not talk to people and, you know, she goes and do things, uh, I think it has been probably more beneficial to me than, you know, that's me not true because you fact check almost everything I put on the internet first. I think so, right? A lot of people think that it's like me running the account, which I do the button pressing, but like most of that information is first like filtered and upgraded by Marina. Oh, that's really cool. I love that. I think that's... to the annoyance of you when we're in the car, like driving to work and I'm like, can you help me answer this question? She's like, oh my God, can we just listen to the news? <laughs> Very cool, though. That's really cool. I, I'm 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 glad to hear that. I know that you know. Again, like I said, um, Zoe, my wife, is is also shyer and is now like a character on the podcast. She even has her own theme song when she has helped with interviews. It is a bad parody of a Hamilton song that I put together, and it is stunning. Um, and it's it's really interesting. Every once in a while, like we were at the AZA conference this year. And, you know, she was walking alone. We were doing different things. And somebody just pointed at her and screamed, Rossafari! And she was like, what the hell? Like, but yeah, but I, I think she also enjoys it for the same reasons. And it has helped her make, like, professional connections and stuff, which is really cool. But Especially with Gen Z, that, like, a lot of the communication happens on Instagram. Like, I've been blown away by the number of students and early career scientists that I've met that I never would have had the opportunity to interact with just as a consequence of being on social media. So, you know, I'm trying to study adaptation and be adaptable myself um, and recognizing that that's a really powerful place for making connections, particularly with the generation behind me. So. Absolutely. That's that's very cool. Um. I'm trying to study adaptation and be adaptable myself. You're such a nerd. I love it, but you're such a nerd. Now I'm curious, Marina, and that, you know, since, since, you know, obviously, you know, Lydia studies adaptation and tries to be adaptable. Do you sleep a lot as somebody who studies? Hybrid? <laughs> I'm kidding. Just a dumb joke. <laughs> we have a lack of a compatibility in the working time. You're uh, becoming less nocturnal. I'm, I'm becoming different. less nocturnal, but I used to like work more at night and Lydia works in the morning. So we are sort of converging into like overlapping working times. Which is yeah. Different. No, it's definitely the case where like I get up much earlier and I have a couple hours of like concentrated work time early in the morning while Marina is a slower ramp up. She's a slower to get going, slower arousal rate. <laughs> Um, and then in the afternoon, basically early, late evening, you have like a concentrated bout of work and that's when I tend to like make dinner. Um, so we sort of like figured out within our home life, how to accommodate our different like circadian patterns. Nice. That makes sense. Yeah. You're kind of a crepuscular couple. Um, <laughs> 
That would be our joint Instagram handle, Crepuscular Couple. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Well, is there anything else that we want to talk about pertaining to lemurs? I mean, that's a really broad, open-ended question. <laughs> I'm going to walk away for an hour and you guys yeah. just talk and I'll come back. <laughs> I mean, do you want to give like a small shout out to the mouse lemurs? We've been talking about dwarf lemurs. Oh, definitely. Like mouse lemurs are the coolest. Let's talk about mouse lemurs. They don't, I think they don't often get their like share of credit for being able to hibernate as well. Not nearly as deeply or maybe as like obligately as the dwarf lemurs, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't know what to say about mouse lemurs. I, I, I started studying them, but they, they are very variable. They do all different sort of things. It's not the kind of species that you would like to, um, uh, to go and talk to in a you know in five minutes. That's, that's well. Then how about this? Will you will y'all agree to come back at some point? Not anytime soon. I know you'll need a an emotional rest after post, this one. Yes. Post holiday podcast. Yes, yes, yes. Can we can we do mouse lemurs next time? Is that okay? Yeah. Instead of the twelve days of Christmas, we'll get the twenty five species of mouse lemur. <laughs> Amazing. And then um, are, are you know I know uh that that. Duke Lemur Center is its own kind of conservation organization, but is there any way that people can help out the DLC or are there any other conservation organizations that you'd like to give a shout out to? Oh man, there's so many good conservation organizations. Fanambi is a Malagasy led organization that's been doing a lot of fundraising. They have a lot of really good in-country initiatives. Um, and so I think they have some fundraising goals right now. So F-A-N-A-M-B-Y. Um, so if folks could give some support their way, either by learning through what they do or donating if you're able, I think that would be really, really appreciated on their part. Okay. Fanambi sounds awesome. And uh, they're you... phenomenal. Oh, there it is. And uh, did, did you warn her what's coming next? No, I didn't. <laughs> now that's just bad wifing. <laughs> it's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossifari poop story. No, I'm just gonna say something that is not personal, but it has to do with dwarf lemurs. Yeah. We're talking about. Um, dwarf lemurs are the only lemurs, as far as I know, and the only primates, I think, that they are fecal markers. So they are mark their territories by basically depositing the feces as they are coming out of the anus and spreading it like butter. And so they do that on branches and around the sleeping um, sort of tree holes. Um, and I have seen, especially here, in addition to the marking, I have seen dwarf lemurs actually ingesting their own feces um, at times. But the fecal marking, I think, is, um, I mean, it's informative. It's, it's actually a piece of science. So there. it's actually fascinating that the like anus of dwarf lemurs is like lower down on the tail, like on purpose, basically, so they can like better smear it into the substrate on which they are depositing their mark. Interesting. See, and I was going to suggest you talk about a different aspect of dwarf lemur poop, which is that they don't poop while hibernating. But how long can those species stay in the colon? Maybe a month or two. Yeah. They they have these pellets, so they hibernate and they come out of hibernation during that brief arousal and then another pellet and then go back to the torpor. And then when they arouse a week later, another pellet until they uh, empty their uh, gut. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I am. I didn't, I did not realize all that went into hibernation. That's, that's really something else. 
Very cool. Well, thank you both for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure thank to you. be here. And as soon as I can get down your way, I want to come hang out. I want, I want to, I want to come hang out at the center. I also kind of just want to grab dinner with y'all because I think we would have a blast. So there are some delicious local restaurants here in Durham, North Carolina. So yeah, I miss, man, I miss that area. There was a, a period where I played Raleigh like once every eight months or so. And it was, it was a good time. I love it down there. So I'll get down eventually. It'll happen. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I kind of felt like a dork in the ending there. Guys, please be my friends. I want to hang out with you. But also, uh, I I want them to be my friends and I want to hang out with them. So, uh, you know, never hurts to ask. And actually, I've got a Florida trip coming up in March. So uh, hopefully I can make that happen. You know, if they're not running off to Madagascar. Um, So I guess we'll find out. But yeah, I just, you know, I just, I'm just so very thankful to amazing scientists like this and also just um just so grateful to have uh gotten to become friends with Lydia over the last year and then to have her share Marina with me it's just, it's just awesome it's just great people wonderful love it all if you are not following at lemur scientist on Instagram what are you even doing with your life i mean seriously go do that and then i will put all of the links for that and the duke lemur center and all of that stuff in the show notes because you know that is what we do. Uh, yeah, so um, I want to take a minute to say thank you to my Red Panda level patrons, Laura Shank and Kristen Dickey. I uh, hope y'all enjoyed this one. And don't worry, uh, we weren't able to get some uh, bonus content from this episode because we were running out of time on the interview. But I've been getting some really cool stuff that's going to be coming out for all of my patrons soon. Uh, so if you uh, would like to get to hear some of that bonus audio of future episodes, make sure you go and sign up for Patreon. Uh, it's patreon.com slash Rossafari. And for as little as $3 a month, you can help support this podcast. All right, I've said enough. So uh, let me just remind y'all that the word credits backwards is Steiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Rossi. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.